help me to understand why that's not what it means. That that's your burden, right? That's what the words seem to say. So you're saying a provision of the Constitution is unconstitutional. Yes, that's what he's saying. And I think it's not the first time we're going to hear that at the Supreme Court this year. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI and Round Mountains KKRN, up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW, Lanchester, Pennsylvania's W News, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, in Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950 KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the internet, on the Progressive Voices Channel. Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, NicoleSandler.com. Welcome to Arizona, Nicole. Radio Free Brooklyn, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, Detour Talk, and most of your favorite podcast sites blanketing planet Earth. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, an all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. Coming up, the U.S. Supreme Court's new term is now underway, and it's already produced some pretty interesting and arguably shockingly good news, I think, Desi Doyen. Is well, that I do like the to... idea of good news. Including, as you heard at the... Top there, Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson correctly calling out a payday lender industries attorney as uh, characterizing the Constitution itself as unconstitutional. <laughs> so uh, welcome to the madness, otherwise known as 2023 or the Bradcast, however you <laughs> might want to look at it. The great David Dayan of the American Prospect will be here momentarily to discuss the oral arguments in that case, heard on Tuesday, where the far right is finally having their day in court, uh, hoping to once and for all put an end to that dastardly Consumer Financial Protection Bureau as created by Congress with Elizabeth Warren and the Obama administration back in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis to, as the name suggests protect consumers from, among other things, sleazy banks and lenders. So oh, the horror. Got to do away with that, don't we? Uh, but quickly, first, uh, to follow up on our show yesterday, as news was just breaking at the time that Republicans in the U.S. House had successfully moved to vacate the Speaker's chair for the first time in American history and removed Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy from his post, that happened just before airtime. And since then, McCarthy has now announced that he does not plan to run for the job again, 
as the house is now largely closed for business, essentially, until next Tuesday, according to the uh, GOP majority, while they regroup and try to figure out where the hell to go from here. That won't be easy, as the House, by and large, is constrained from doing pretty much anything until a speaker has been selected, and clearly the Republicans who led the coup against their own speaker did not seem to have a plan in place for what to do next. McCarthy was removed by a vote of 2016 to 2010, as we noted yesterday, after Republicans led by Matt Gates of Florida voted to unseat him as speaker. And they were joined by all House Democrats who decided not to support the Republican speaker. After he had double-crossed them on several deals, he had announced an evidence-free impeachment inquiry of Joe Biden. He even tried to blame them for McCarthy's problems coming up with a Republican bill to keep the federal government from shutting down last weekend. The eight House GOP mutineers who ousted McCarthy were Congress members Matt Gates of Florida, Andy Biggs of Arizona, Tim Burchett of Tennessee, Eli Crane of Arizona, Nancy Mace of South Carolina, Matt Rosendale of Montana, Bob Good of Virginia, and Ken Buck of Colorado. So uh, who has now thrown their hat in the ring to replace McCarthy? Well, <laughs> Congressman Jim Jordan of Ohio was the first to announce that he will be running to be the next speaker, a move likely to prompt praise from House conservatives, as Politico reported today. But they noted that his candidacy will likely run into Majority Leader Steve Scalise of Louisiana, who has now also tossed his hat in the ring and has worked to court the same far, far right base in Congress. Jordan told reporters Wednesday, quote, I think I can unite the conservative base and the party and the conference. And of course, if there's one thing I can think of when it comes to Jim Jordan, it's being a uniter. <laughs> In a letter to his Republican colleagues on Wednesday, Jordan, the House Judiciary Chair and the so-called Freedom Caucus member, formally requested their support, noting, quote, we are at a critical crossroads in our nation's history. Now is the time for our Republican conference to come together to keep our promises to Americans. We can focus on the changes that improve the country and unite us in offering real solutions. But no matter what we do, we must do it together. There he goes, uniting again. Jordan has worked closely with Oversight Committee Chair James Comer of Kentucky on the impeachment inquiry into Joe Biden and had become a close ally of now former Speaker Kevin McCarthy. He is a Trump ally with the uh, GOP conference, but really who isn't at this point? And one of the uh, many chairs to have called for Congress to defund the police. But in this case, uh, Republicans are calling to defund the entire Department of Justice because they are you know, enforcing law and order by holding Donald Trump accountable for crimes. So why not? It wouldn't be the first time the uh, House Republicans have elected a former wrestling coach with disturbing allegations regarding sexual abuse of students True. in his past. Uh, and not long after Jordan's announcement, House Majority Leader Steve Scalise officially announced he would, too, be seeking the speakership. 
It's unclear if either could earn the backing from GOP centrists, however, such that there are any. I think the better description uh, that was Politico describing them as centrist, the better description would be Republicans who won their seats in districts previously won by Joe Biden. But those members, as they note, are necessary, a necessary faction given Republicans' tiny majority in the House and unanimous Democratic opposition. It has long been an open secret that the Louisiana Republican, uh, uh, Steve Scalise, had aspirations for that top job, a fact that reportedly caused tense relations between him and McCarthy. So we will see who else steps forward over the next week. There are now two candidates, I guess. I'm sure the process will all run very smoothly and professionally. (laughs) Sadly, we've seen this movie before. (laughs) Yes, uh, when it took, well, uh, 15 rounds of voting to install McCarthy about just nine months ago. So this process will either take more or less than 15 rounds. That remains to be seen. Now, when I got off air yesterday and and went to write up the show for uh, posting over at bradblog.com, I sort of joked at, at the blog about the GOP chaos in Congress that by the week's end would all end up somehow being the fault of Democrats. Well, apparently, I guess I was not joking at all. I thought I was. Apparently, I wasn't. (laughs) That only took about five minutes. Uh, Moments after the uh, successful motion to vacate on Tuesday afternoon, apparently, an enraged Speaker Pro Tem, that would be Republican Patrick McHenry, lashed out at Democrats, at Democrats, for supporting the Republican resolution by notifying uh, former Democratic uh, Speaker Nancy Pelosi and her second-in-command, Steny Hoyer, that they must vacate their Capitol hideaway offices on Wednesday as punishment for what those dastardly Democrats did. Now, Pelosi, as it turns out, was not even in Congress on Tuesday. She was not even in D.C. on Tuesday. But she did offer a response in a statement today, quote, with all of the important decisions that the new Republican leadership must address, which we are all eagerly awaiting, one of the first actions taken by the new speaker pro tempore was to order me to immediately vacate my office in the Capitol. Sadly, because I am in California to mourn the loss of the loss of and pay tribute to my dear friend Diane Feinstein I am unable to retrieve my belongings at this time this eviction she said is a sharp departure from tradition as speaker i gave former speaker hastert a significantly larger suite of offices for as long as he wished speaker hastert is now uh, serving time in prison for that uh, Sexual abuse of minors that I mentioned, former uh, speaker being a uh, Hastert being a former wrestling coach. Pelosi continues, uh, office space doesn't matter to me, but it seems to to be important to them. Now that the new Republican leadership has settled this important matter, (laughs) let's hope they get to work on what's truly important for the American people. Don't hold your breath. Of course, they are still 
busy blaming Democrats today for their own party's failures. And really, I did think I I was half joking because I did figure the media would somehow figure out some way to blame all of this on Democrats. Oh, definitely. But boy, they're all moving a lot faster to do that than than even I expected. Uh, This is an, an issue where they're they're blaming Democrats for their own party's failures. And the fact that their own Republican Speaker of the House made a deal with the Republican far right in Congress that any one member of Congress could move at any time to violate, uh, I'm sorry, to file a motion to vacate that would require an immediate vote on whether the Republican Speaker should remain in his job or not. So obviously, when Republican Matt Gates did that and seven other Republicans joined, All of the Democrats to vote against the Republican House Speaker. Well, it's all Democrats fault somehow. How? Well, George W. Bush's sleazy former press secretary, Ari Fleischer, for example, he tweeted, quote, unbelievable. The Democrats, with the help of Matt Gaetz and a handful of GOP members, just ousted the Republican Speaker of the House. Yes, it was the Democrats. With the help of Matt Gates, help being, you know, filing a formal resolution to vote on vacating the chair. The Daily Beast's Matt Lewis argued, quote, you can't blame Dems for the blow that right wing bomb throwers landed on Kevin McCarthy. But what you can say is that they failed to do the right thing on behalf (laughs) of the American people. The right thing, I guess, being voting for a Republican House Speaker that all of the Democrats opposed 15 times on every single ballot just last January, the way the opposition party pretty much always does in every House Speaker election pretty much since time immemorial. Darn those Democrats betraying the American people. (laughs) God, I mean, expecting, uh, demanding that Democrats are somehow obligated to vote for the Republicans. Speakers is just is just insane. Dan McLaughlin, the uh, senior writer over at the right wing National Review, he tweeted, quote, remember, Democrats may say they want more responsible Republican leadership, but they will side against that every chance they get and then complain if anyone tries to hold them responsible for their own choices. Their own choices, I guess, to vote against the guy who broke his word by unilaterally calling for an evidence-free impeachment inquiry of the uh, Democratic president, Joe Biden, and blamed Democrats for the near shutdown of the federal government over the weekend, even after every single Democrat voted with Kevin McCarthy for a 45-day continuing resolution to keep the government open when a majority of Republicans voted against the Republican speaker. Well, darn those Democrats. And finally, David Marcus, a uh, right-wing columnist at Fox News and other wingnut wingnut outlets, uh, he charged, quote, make no mistake, it was Democrats who ousted McCarthy today. (laughs) Republicans voted over 90 percent against it. They just needed Gates's help to do it. Democrats, I guess. 
Tom Nichols of The Atlantic sort of summed up the responses to all of these knuckleheads when he pointed out, quote, Republicans are incensed that Democrats didn't stop Republicans from attacking Republicans. And ProPublica's John Harwood accurately criticized those in the corporate media who have been responding to all of this by, you know, claiming that this proves once again that American politics is broken. Harwood tweeted, quote, if American politics were broken, we'd have seen things like this happen when Democrats controlled the House. By the way, by the same slim five vote margin. But we didn't, notes Harwood. What's broken very specifically is the Republican Party. Well, thank you, John. You are absolutely right. And I hope the rest of the corporate media somehow figures that out. But again, I'm not holding my breath. As David Kurtz writes at the uh, Talking Points memo today, there's a lot to love about the downfall of Kevin McCarthy. He deserved everything he got. The House GOP is a colossal mess. He quotes John Harris over at Politico, who notes about McCarthy, quote, at the start, his speakership was effectively an optical illusion. At the end, it was an exercise in self-abasement. But, observes Kurtz, this is not really about Kevin McCarthy. He's a stand-in. Before him were the chronically debased Paul Ryan and John Boehner. The House GOP has been on this merry-go-round for more time for more than a decade now. McCarthy's downfall is another symptom of the same underlying pathologies. A cultish GOP enthralled to a would-be autocrat, anti-majoritarian structural impediments, a surge in right-wing extremism, white resentment and grievances channeled into a burn-it-all-down fever. It's why spending even a moment purporting to analyze whether Democrats, quote, joined the MAGA right to depose McCarthy is foolishness. This is about right-wing politics in America. Kurtz adds, I'm a firm believer in the credo that things can always get worse, not as a lament, he notes, or a throwing up of the hands, but as a cold-eyed assessment of the road ahead. With McCarthy out, things can definitely get worse, he notes. And of course, when they do, we will know who to blame. The Democrats. <laughs> Meanwhile, as the GOP has broken Congress, the Biden administration on Wednesday announced another $9 billion of student loan forgiveness through fixes to its debt relief programs. That relief comes, however, on the heels of student loan payments resuming for millions of borrowers after a more than three-year pause amid the pandemic. With the latest announcement, on the other hand, the Biden administration has now forgiven $127 billion of student debt for roughly 3.6 million borrowers, all without the help of Republicans in Congress. That $9 billion will help another 125,000 borrowers. That, after the Supreme Court earlier this year struck down President Biden's student loan forgiveness plan for tens of millions of Americans on some pretty much made-up reason, 
the, Amer- the administration, however, does vow to try again, but they're offering a lot of relief in the meantime using existing mechanisms, which I thought you should know about. So let's take a quick break here, and we will move over to that other branch of government that has similarly been corrupted by right-wing politics in America. That would be the judicial branch, where the U.S. Supreme Court, if the story uh, so far there this week is any indication, appears to have, well, lost their storyline entirely. And that's good news at least for the first day or two of their new term. David Dan joins us next. I'm Brad Friedman, and you're listening to The Bradcast. Hey, this is Desi. The Bradcast and the Green News Report survive thanks to you and your support. Please drop by bradblog.com donate today to help us stay independent every day over your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Follow where the money goes. Follow where the money goes. Follow where the money goes. it closely. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. And then there is the other branch of the federal government that has also been gamed by the far right within an inch of its life. That would, of course, be the U.S. Supreme Court, which convened its new term this week, as it does each year on the first Monday in October. No matter how packed, stolen or corrupted it may be, and make no mistake, it absolutely is. Nonetheless, there has been some somewhat surprising news out of the out of the gate in the first couple of days of this term with, for example, the court's arguably most corrupted justice. That would be Clarence Thomas actually deigning to recuse himself from a shadow docket ruling regarding whether Trump attorney John Eastman's emails were protected by attorney client privilege. The court ruled that since they included evidence of a crime, they were not protected by the attorney-client privilege. But the fact that Thomas recused himself from that case was a telling tribute, I think, to the investigative journalism by reporters at ProPublica and a number of other outlets who have finally, after years of folks like us trying to make noise about it, dug deeply into the very close, if largely undisclosed, financial entanglements that Clarence Thomas and several others on the court have enjoyed with right-wing billionaire megadonors for years, many of whom have interests before the court. In the John Eastman case, Thomas, the far-right activist jurist whose mother actually lives in a home rent-free, purchased some years ago by a right-wing billionaire megadonor, recused himself from a ruling regarding Eastman's emails, which contained discussions about both Thomas himself and his far-right activist wife, Ginny. Recusal would seem a no-brainer here, but it hasn't been in similar cases in the past for the corrupt Justice Thomas. So a bit of good news there to begin the court's new term. And then on Tuesday... Based on oral arguments, the Supreme Court appeared likely, according to observers, to preserve the work of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, or CFPB, against the long-standing challenge, in fact, pretty much since its creation, 
in response to the 2008 financial crisis from the far right, this challenge that includes uh, some of the, the those far right business interests who have been propping up a number of members of the court with free gifts and luxury travel. But despite that, even some of the far right Republican appointees on the high court on Tuesday sounded skeptical of arguments that the agency somehow violates the Constitution in the way it is funded. The way Congress set it up, set up its funding mechanism, is somehow itself unconstitutional, and therefore anything that the executive agency has done, or is doing, or will do, is also somehow unconstitutional, as the argument uh, seems to go. It was previously approved by the far-right Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, and I guess Congress would simply have to just start over from scratch at this point if they wanted to create a CFPB that may actually do the job that it was created by Congress to do, at least according to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. The agency is the brainchild of Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts, who put it together um, as a federal agency during the Obama administration before becoming a senator herself, and it has been opposed by Republicans and their financial backers ever since. The oral argument at SCOTUS this week is the years-long culmination, I think, of that challenge. The CFPB case is one of several major challenges to federal regulatory agencies that is uh, that are on the docket this term for a court that has, for well over a decade now, been finding novel new ways, no matter how they have to stretch or, in fact, completely reinterpret the text of the Constitution in order to limit the regulatory reach of those agencies, from the EPA to the IRS to the SEC and their ability to do the jobs that they have been mandated to do by Congress. Nonetheless, according to pretty much all observers that I've been able to find, a majority of the court on Tuesday actually appeared ready to reject the sweeping arguments made by the Fifth Circuit Court and by the lawyer for the payday lenders whose challenge to a CFPB rule spawned the Supreme Court case initially. A ruling for the agency might finally quiet concerns about the validity of the CFPB's actions since its creation, at least for a few minutes. Unlike most federal agencies, the CFPB, arguably the only major federal executive agency created specifically for consumers as opposed to business interests, does not rely on the annual budgeting process in Congress. Instead, it is funded directly by the Federal Reserve with a current annual limit set by Congress of around $600 million, which really is a drop in the federal bucket as it has been pointed out by many supporters of the agency and even during the oral arguments on Tuesday. But that, according to the agency's challengers, is somehow unconstitutional. Despite other federal agencies like the FEC, the FDIC, etc., having been built on similar funding mechanisms going back decades, even centuries, arguably to the founding of the nation. But the far-right Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals in their novel ruling, held that the CFPB's funding mechanism somehow violated the Constitution's Appropriations Clause because it improperly insulates the CFPB from congressional supervision somehow. 
Embracing that ruling, the uh, lawyer, Noel Francisco, who served as Donald Trump's solicitor general at the court during his presidency, said on behalf of the payday lenders on Tuesday that Congress just can't simply hand so much power to an executive branch agency, describing Congress's funding mandate as a, quote, perpetual delegation to the agency. Even some of the right-wing justices on the high court, yes, including the wildly corrupt Justice Thomas and Justice Kavanaugh, at least for this week, didn't seem to be buying that argument. This is a, a, an appropriations clause case. Uh, I get your point that this is different, that it's unique, that it's odd, that n they've never gone this far. But that's not having gone this far is not a constitutional problem. It doesn't mm -hmm. prove your case. Uh, the word perpetual I'm having trouble with because uh, it implies that uh, it's entrenched and that a future Congress couldn't change it. But Congress could change it tomorrow. And there's nothing perpetual or permanent or um, uh, about this. <laughs> and when you've lost Justices Thomas and Kavanaugh, well... While the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and some other business interests backed the payday lenders, mortgage bankers and other sectors regulated by the CFPB cautioned the court against making too broad of a ruling. So why would they do that? Well, let's ask our guest who literally wrote the book about the 2008 financial crisis, about that and much more on what arguably could be a landmark Supreme Court ruling no matter which way. It is actually decided. Our old friend David Dayan is an investigative financial journalist and executive editor of The American Prospect, as well as the author of the award-winning Chain of Title, How Three Ordinary Americans Uncovered Wall Street's Great Foreclosure Fraud and, more recently, Monopolized Life in the Age of Corporate Power, in which, full disclosure, I make a bit of a cameo appearance. Mr. Dayan, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Thank you for having me, Brad. So uh, this seems to be good news, which I think we could all use uh, this week. So I'm, I'm, I'm sure the reporting on it must be entirely wrong. But even you, uh, David, and your coverage <clears throat> at The Prospect seem uncharacteristically optimistic here. You write, it's hard to see five votes for doing away with the CFPB's funding structure, given the uh, oral arguments, though you quickly add anything is possible. I want to get into some of the specifics here, but since the... Mm -hmm. CFPB is really such a, a new and actually small agency and has sort of been crippled, I think, for years by these lower court rulings like the one that got to SCOTUS on Tuesday. Can you explain what the CFPB was stood up to do and what it actually does now, uh, if anything, while it's being perpetually challenged by these right wingers? Sure. So, uh, after the financial crisis, one of the things that uh, a lot of observers, experts saw as a major problem was that the consumer protection function at the federal level mm -hmm. was sorely lacking. It was nominally in the hands of the Federal Reserve, which was far more interested in the safety and soundness of the banks than whether people were getting ripped off on their mortgages, getting ripped off on their student loans, getting ripped off on their auto loans. Mm -hmm. And uh, Elizabeth Warren, uh, who at the time was not a senator, she was a, a bankruptcy law professor at Harvard, had this idea 
that we have a consumer product safety commission if your toaster blows up why don't we have a, a commission that looks into whether your mortgage is going to blow up right and so they named it the consumer financial protection bureau this was really her brainchild and since its inception uh in 2011 really uh dodd frank passed in 2010 took a year to stand it up uh, i believe the number is 17 billion dollars that have been returned to the public as a result of cfpb's investigations uh, even despite the Trump years where it was, uh, you know, a little bit missing in action. Uh, the CFPB generally has uh, done a really fantastic job of centering a mission in the federal government of protecting people who are getting ripped off by financial operators. And so, uh, you know, and they're still doing that today. Rohit Chopra, uh, is the director of CFPB now, mm -hmm. and he is uh, a very aggressive enforcer. There have been many uh, cases that he's taken that have helped people out. Uh, and they also write rules that that are sort of the rules of the road for various uh, financial and mortgage markets. So uh, if, if the agency is actually making money, not costing money for the American people, it's actually helping consumers why is it the perpetual target of so many uh, on the right wing? I mean, I think you've answered your own question. It's uh, taking money from banks and shady financial operators and giving that money back to the people who were ripped off. And uh, there are very powerful interests that don't like that. They, they liked the way it was when uh, financial companies could uh, essentially gouge people with impunity. And so the, the, the organization that brought up this particular case, mm -hmm. the Con Consumer Financial Services, Community Financial Services Association of America, is the trade group for payday lenders. That's who brought this case. Mm -hmm. uh, they said that uh, CFPB put together a payday lending rule uh, that would be quote unquote onerous to them. What they mean is that uh, payday lenders would actually have to see if people could afford their loans mm -hmm. uh, in order to get them. And payday lenders didn't like that at all. So uh, they the threw up a host of arguments uh, you know, for why uh, the, there's no way the CFPB could actually uh, institute this rule against payday lending. And uh, the Fifth Circuit looked at all of these d very different arguments and finally chose one that they agreed with, and it was about the uh, alleged unconstitutionality of the funding structure. And, and we will get to that in a minute. And just for people who aren't familiar with it, the, if there are any who aren't, the payday lending, the, these are essentially these sleazy uh, companies that you see that will uh, cash your check on payday and give you a, a, a loan or uh, yeah, at, several, a ridiculous uh, interest yeah, several, rates. Several different uh, things that they do. Uh, there's check cashing stores, which, you know, for a fee will 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 give you money. But this mm -hmm. is more of like an advanced loan. Mm -hmm. It's called a payday loan because that's when you're supposed to be able to pay it back. Mm -hmm. So you get an advance uh, and then in two weeks you have to pay back the loan uh, with a certain amount of interest. Mm -hmm. And usually people can't pay back the loan, but they roll it over to another two weeks mm -hmm. and they get trapped in what's called a cycle of debt. Mm -hmm. And pretty soon, let's say they make a $500 loan initially, 
they've paid thousands of dollars on it, but because they keep rolling it over, rolling it over, rolling it over because they can't fully pay it off, uh, they've they've spent far more than the five hundred dollars that they took out for the loan in the first place. So that is how these guys operate. Uh, it's a good business for them. They want to keep it going. And CFPB, with a mission to protect the public, says, well, look, you you, you can't do this uh, unless you actually judge whether these people can repay these loans. And uh, that's where the controversy has begun. Now, you report that some business interests, in fact, like the Mortgage Bankers Association, actually argued in an amicus brief in favor of the CFPB. Why, why would they do that? Yeah, actually, really interesting part of this is that so the, the payday lenders just wanted to get rid of the payday uh, lending rule. They didn't want to get rid of the CFPB entirely. They just wanted to, you know, get the pressure off of them. However, when the Fifth Circuit ruled, uh, they essentially said that everything that CFPB has done up to its inception would be invalidated because it would all have been carried out with money that was unconstitutionally provided, right? So that would wipe out virtually everything CFPB has done. And among the many things CFPB uh, has under its purview are certain mortgage rules that actually help the mortgage industry. Uh, it gives them a safe harbor if they if they you know position their loans in a certain way, mm -hmm. for example. Mm -hmm. um, and if that went away, the mortgage industry would be liable potentially for every loan it's ever put out. Uh, you know, subject to any kind of uh, uh, attack or, or, or litigation by private uh, litigators. So the Mortgage Banking Association said, well, look, this is actually going to hurt us. We uh -huh. need CFPB to be in place uh -huh. so that all of these rules that have been set up over decades can continue to exist. And so they put out an amicus brief saying, you know, uh, Maybe you do. You guys do what you want, but don't hurt us, right? <laughs> right, like, right. like make this the 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 most minimal ruling you possibly can to stabilize uh, the the mortgage market and and make sure that we don't turn everything into chaos. I mean, I wrote about this when when the Fifth Circuit uh, uh -huh. made its initial ruling. It really threatens practically every financial transaction, every consumer financial transaction that is made in the country. Uh, that's what's at stake here with this case. And uh, it was all of which sort of underscores uh, just how far, far to the right the Fifth uh, U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals actually is, how rogue it seems like this uh, circuit has gone. Uh, mm -hmm. they, they held that the funding for the CFPB violates the Constitution's Appropriations Clause because it improperly insulates the CFPB from congressional supervision. That seems to be the argument by the Fifth Circuit, which is seems like it itself is a party in this case. Um, <laughs> what, what did the uh, how did the Biden administration solicitor general, Elizabeth Prelogger and and you, I believe, uh, what, what do you guys find wrong about that argument? Well, I mean, the fact of the matter is that most financial uh, regulatory agencies are not funded through direct appropriations from Congress, or at least not solely funded that way. Uh, many of them are funded by utilities on the uh, industries that they regulate. Uh, 
for example, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. Mm -hmm. they, there's an assessment that is placed on banks, and that's how they fund their operations. The Office of the T Comptroller of the Currency, mm -hmm. the Federal uh, Housing Finance Agency, the Federal Reserve, which is the agency where uh, CFPB nominally sits mm -hmm. and where they get their appropriations from. So uh, if CFPB is unconstitutional, why wouldn't all of these other things be unconstitutional? And in fact, there are plenty of other programs that are not funded by direct annual appropriations from Congress. I'll give you two big ones, Medicare mm -hmm. and Social Security. Mm. They are mandatory spending. 60% of the federal budget is funded this way. Are they also unconstitutional because they are not exclusively funded through Congress, but funded, you know, in part through uh, FICA and mm -hmm. through, you know, uh, paying into Social Security, paying into Medicare over years, premiums, things like that. Does that make them unconstitutional, too, because only Congress has the power of the purse? So, uh, you know, the the Fifth Circuit sort of made this one uh, ruling that was, you know, trying to help out payday lenders, but it really affects the functioning of daily life, if you think about yeah, it. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think that the Supreme Court, uh, don't don't take my word for it, but, because I think that even the conservative justices on the Supreme Court mm -hmm. uh, had problems with this argument. Uh, yeah, the, I, I'm, I'm wondering... You know, even Thomas, uh, as you heard, he said they, they haven't gone this far before, but that doesn't make it unconstitutional. Uh, right. First, I'm wondering, uh, is, is there something here that actually goes far, that goes somehow farther than other similarly uh, funded federal agencies? And uh, by the way, why what is there a specific reason why the CFPB was funded this way as opposed to, you know, via the annual appropriations process like so many other right. agencies? I think that even the supporters of CFPB would concede that the point of funding it in the way that it did was to make sure it wasn't subject to the whims of congressional appropriators. That doesn't make it illegal, but I think I think that was certainly the reason. Mm -hmm. um, it was funded basically through the Federal Reserve. It, it's sort of a sub-agency of the Federal Reserve. If you think about it, the Federal Reserve had the initial authority over consumer financial protection. So it, it does make some sense to locate it within the Fed mm -hmm. uh, since that's where these, these authorities were initially. Right. And uh, what it does is it asks for an appropriation. The Fed provides that money. Congress has said you there's a cap at a certain level. It was initially mm -hmm. 600 million. I think it's a little bit more now. And uh, the, the CFPB can draw on a transfer of funds from the Fed up to that cap. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, and by the way, that cap, as you said, 600 million is a, I believe Justice Kagan called it a rounding error yeah. in the federal budget. Exactly. Well, that's why yeah. I'm wondering when Thomas says, oh, they haven't gone this far before. Well, I mean, that, that structure is somewhat unusual. I mean, the fact that it gets its money from the Fed, uh, there are other agencies that get their money from a larger department, mm -hmm. but uh, you could construe it uh, I, the way that the, the the Fifth Circuit called it, they, that the uh, CFPB is double insulated, that they're collecting their money from an agency that also collects its money from the private sector, from 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 bank assessments and things like that. So in that sense, th this was seen as somewhat novel. Uh, 
Uh, however, uh, the the Solicitor General, Elizabeth Preliger, uh, came up with a number of arguments saying that we have had something that at least looks somewhat like this since the founding of the country right. in 1789. Right. The one that she cited was the Customs Service, which huh. was a standing appropriation uh -huh. that was funded by user fees. Uh, you know, they took a cut of all customs uh, uh, assessments that coming into the country. Mm -hmm. uh, and there wasn't a cap in that case. Congress didn't even say, you can only take this much money up to this point and no more. They said, you know, you, you, you have you have the, the free reign to take. So, uh, you know, I, I think that certainly the payday lenders and the Fifth Circuit were trying to make this argument that this is wildly different than our history. And uh, Solicitor General Preliger's argument was, no, this is actually rooted in our history, rooted in the text of the Appropriations Clause, which, uh, you know, the, the, the opposition, the, the payday lenders tried to imbue with all this different significance, and that, uh, you know, this is generally uh, within the bounds of what Congress is able to do. And how did, uh, as I understand it, it was generally Sam Alito uh, who, who tried to at least support the uh, Fifth Circuit's ruling here. Mm -hmm. What was his argument uh, in, in I mean, support? He had, an odd, he had an odd argument as I read it. Uh, as I heard it, uh -huh. it, it was it was more about what is the limiting principle on the government's argument. Like if if they believe that this is allowed, then what what more could be allowed? Could it could it be let's give ten billion dollars, let's give a hundred billion dollars, let's give a trillion dollars? He was making all these kind of like wild hypotheticals mm -hmm. about it. But that wasn't talking about the here and now. Like what we're actually talking about is something. Uh, Noel Francisco, who was the the litigator on the other side, right. the payday lenders, was trying to say that, you know, he was trying to make the same arguments that like what, how much is enough? What what would, what would be uh, limiting on this? You could do anything. And even Justice Gorsuch had to step in and say, you know, this is the practical reality. I understand that that's not what we're at right now. Uh, Francisco was saying, you know, it's 600 million and, and this uh, CFPB has never gone close to uh, its cap. And that's not even true. Like the CFPB has o went over 600 million last year. The cap has since got up adjusted for inflation. Uh -huh. But uh, we have no idea, like if it takes, if there are more rules that are put on CFPB, if there's more authority that it gets, sure, it could go up beyond that that cap well, and congress has the ability to change that as justice kavanaugh said yeah. whenever they want exactly so it's not perpetual I, I and i and i'm sort of you know this it, if congress did decide uh that it was the cap was 10 trillion dollars i'm not a constitutional law expert but i don't think there's anything in the constitution that says congress cannot do this this is all a creation of congress and as you note, as uh, you and Justice Kavanaugh note, David Dayen, because you guys usually agree on we everything. Are, we are simpatico. Peas in a pod. Yeah, this Congress can go in tomorrow and change the entire structure, cancel it if they want to. I think that the question of the day, as, as I sort of heard it, uh, came from uh, Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson, who said, how do we avoid the judiciary becoming a right. super legislator? Telling the Congress, agency by agency whether thumbs up or thumbs down. Because really, yeah. 
that is exactly what we've been seeing from the Roberts court and what I suspect we're going to see more of in, in this term, for example, in the long-awaited uh, case mm-hmm. on the Chevron uh, uh, deference, yeah. uh, granting deference <clears throat> to experts at federal agencies over corporate interest to make decisions about things that Congress has uh, legislated but hasn't specifically <clears throat> uh, pointed uh, uh, spelled out. Yeah. But agency by agency, they seem to be just knocking their uh, uh, knocking down their power. Absolutely. And, and, and that, that's what that this was, was an, about. Yeah, that was an important moment. And I think not just important for this case. It came near the end uh-huh. of oral arguments. Uh, I think it's important for down the road. I think I think Justice Jackson was making an argument that will, you know, continue to, to be built upon yep. in, in future cases. You know, the, the point that the payday lenders were making is that Congress is giving up its power to the executive to decide the value of an appropriation. And what Justice Jackson is saying is that your remedy for that is to have the judiciary decide the value of an appropriation. So why is that better for separation of powers issues to to, uh, arrogate to the executive, to the judicial branch, something that is supposed to be in the purview of the legislative branch and like it or not about the CFPB and the way that this is structured, it was created by Congress. Yep. Congress didn't have a gun to its head. Right. It, it made this appropriation, and it's sustained that structure for the last several Congresses. Every year, there's a federal budget where that could be changed, yep. and it hasn't done so. So why does the judiciary have to bail it out and also you know, make a decision on how much is too much. Mm-hmm. You know, it's something Justice Barrett said. It's like, well, what do I know about $600 million? Is that too much? Is that not enough? Yeah. I, don't, I don't understand that. Uh, so you know, I think that was a really important moment. And hopefully, and I expect that Justice Jackson will elaborate on it with cases like the Chevron deference case, which would essentially say that the judiciary branch has more authority to decide the interpretation of a regulation than the regulatory expert agencies that uh, is their mission to do so. Justice Jackson has been a breath of fresh air on this court. And when I called the Fifth Circuit Court a rogue court, I didn't mean in any way to underestimate the rogueness of the U.S. Supreme Court at this point, uh, because uh, that's really what this is about and uh, what what needs to be protected against. Uh, You report, David Dayen, that uh, this this case is likely to go in favor of the CFPB as you see it. Uh, mm-hmm. What will that decision there therefore mean for both the CFPB and on a broader level, if applicable, to uh, other executive agencies created by Congress? Yeah, I would hope that that is sort of the end of this continuing series of cases and and judicial attacks, legal attacks on the CFPB. There was one successful one previously that changed uh, the structure of the director saying that it could be, you know, that it serves at the pleasure of the president rather than being uh, able to serve out its five-year term at will. Mm -hmm. And uh, interestingly, even though that was a case brought up by conservatives, Mm -hmm. that's the reason we have Rohit Chopra today. Mm -hmm. Uh, Kathy Craninger, who was Trump's director of the CFPB, was put in place in um, late 2018 
it's a five-year term. She would still be the director today yeah. if they didn't change that in the what is uh, called the Celia Law case. Uh-huh. So uh, thank you, Supreme Court, <laughs> for getting us uh, right. Rohit Chopra as the head of the CFPB. So I think that hopefully this will end the, the legal attacks. I don't know that it's super applicable to the other cases. As you know, the Supreme Court has been putting forward this cockamamie thing called the Major Questions Doctrine, right. which says that Congress has to be really, really specific, and it's specific in ways that only the justices understand. Only on important uh, things that we yes. determine are the important things. Exactly. Yeah. Only on what they determine. So right. I feel like that will come into play in, in several cases this year. You know, I would like to think that Justice Jackson's argument is broadly applicable in terms of not making the judiciary a super a super regulator, a super legislative body. But uh, I'm not I'm not very optimistic on that. Well, but I think she's drawn a bead on it. You're right. And I think uh, I do hope to see her build that case. I, I think you're absolutely right on that, that that is what we We'll be keeping our eyes on moving forward. Mm-hmm. David Day, and before I let you go, uh, President Biden on Wednesday canceled another $9 billion in student debt for a few hundred, mm-hmm. uh, hundreds of thousands of Americans after the mm-hmm. Supreme Court last term inventively rejected the uh, Biden administration's uh, efforts to cancel student loans for, uh, I think, tens of millions. So now um, the Biden administration says it has now forgiven one hundred and twenty seven billion dollars of student debt for roughly three point six million borrowers. But they had originally uh, tried to, you know, forgive a much larger number that was rejected. Is that plan? They said that they were going to redo that plan. Is that plan still in the works or is this the plan? These smaller piecemeal programs. That plan is still in the works, but it's going through a very extended process, uh, what they call uh, negotiated rulemaking. Uh, And it involves a stakeholder effort. It's very protracted. Mm -hmm. Um, It could take a year or more uh, to get through that. So uh, that's sort of happening in the background. What, What the Biden administration is doing with these other uh, uh, debt forgiveness measures, mm-hmm. it's it's just fixing debt forgiveness programs that were hopelessly broken in previous administrations. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, some of this debt is being forgiven through the public service loan forgiveness program, mm-hmm. which says that if you serve in, in public service, and that's broadly defined, it could be teaching, it could be uh, government work, it could be a public defender, if you serve there for a certain number of years, then you'll get your student loans forgiven. Uh, prior to the Biden administration, an absurdly low number of people had actually gotten their loans forgiven. I mean, in the single digits, mm. something like that. Really? And the Biden administration has figured that out. And I think over half a million people have now been forgiven completely through that. There's another thing called the Total and Permanent Disability Program, mm-hmm. where if you become disabled after your 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 you know college graduation, uh, that that you're supposed to have your loans forgiven. And they're fixing that program. There are certain instances of fraud where uh, at for-profit colleges, for example, where the student is promised gainful employment or, or that their their degree would be worth something, mm-hmm. and then they go out in the job market and find out it's worth nothing. Many of those cases, loans are being forgiven in some of the most celebrated for-profit colleges, things like Corinthian, 
colleges, which mm-hmm. is where the first debt strike came from. So really what the Biden administration is doing is they're fixing all of these these various programs. Yep. And what do you know? That gets you hundreds of billions of dollars of yes. loan forgiveness. Uh, uh, sounds terrible. No wonder his uh, uh, approval ratings are so low. I, I, good Lord, uh, David Day. And- I mean, it has to be said that, that yeah. at the same time, just this week, the, there was the resumption of student loan payments. Uh, most students, yeah. uh, tens of millions of them, had not been paying on their student loans since the onset of the pandemic in, in March of 2020. And uh, this is the first month where they'll have to start paying again. Mm. Now, uh, the administration put in an on-ramp basically give it, saying that, okay, if you don't pay them in the first year, you're not really going to be punished in any way. However, interest will continue to accrue, and mm. which means you'll just end up owing more if you just don't pay in the first year. So, uh, you know, I think that if you look at it from the perspective of most students, they didn't pay for three years. Now they're getting a bill for student loans and who is who's president when they get that bill right. Joe Biden. Right. And so rightly or wrongly I think there is some some measure of blame that's going to be afforded there. Just uh one reason why the administration needs to get moving if they want to uh put in place that new program to replace the one that the Supreme Court killed last term. Correct. Correct. David Dayan uh, can be found, of course, at prospect.org, where he is the executive editor. He's also author of Monopolized, Life in the Age of Corporate Power and Chain of Title, How Three Ordinary Americans Uncovered Wall Street's Great Foreclosure Fraud, both great for Christmas and Hanukkah as we're getting close to the holidays. You can also follow him on uh, the site still known as Twitter at (laughs) D-Dayan. David, always great speaking with you, my friend. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Okay, we have got to get out. Yes. My thanks to Desi Doyen, our producer. Thanks to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program or need to give it another listen or share it with a friend or an enemy, you can download it for (laughs) free anytime at bradblog.com. That is made possible by those of you who are generous enough to support our work at bradblog.com slash donate, where we are 100% listener supported. Thank you. Drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks, Mastodons, and yes, sites still known as Twitter, I am the Bradblog. We will see you there until we see you here next time. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. to the Bradcast. We are 100% listener supported thanks to listeners like you who drop by bradblog.com slash donate.